Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Is everybody excited about the fact that winter is apparently over? We just jumped right into spring. Isn't that great? I, I uh, was talking optimistically like that in uh, the entryway when we were starting up this morning, and uh, someone reminded me that we have snow coming, I guess, a couple days this week. But the temperatures don't look like they're going to be low enough for it to matter, so I'm going to remain optimistic. It might just be flurries. I don't know. We'll see. Hope everybody had a good week, though. I, I spent the start of this week in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I had the opportunity. I've never been to Oklahoma. Anyone ever been to Oklahoma before? Okay. All right. Just Nolan. Nobody else? All right, Nolan. It's just you and I. <laughs> had the best barbecue I've ever, ever had. It was so delicious that I decided to buy the t-shirt. So if you ever see me wearing a, a Burn Company Tulsa, Oklahoma t-shirt, I got it in person. It was really good. Um, but I had the chance to be down there working with a group of church planters that are working in that region. So when you think of them, just be praying for them. Some guys working in Tulsa, some guys working in Houston, and some guys working in Arkansas, and everybody met up there. And so it was a, a profitable time together. But again, they would appreciate your prayers, and they have pledged to be praying for us as well. Um, so a few weeks ago, we began our study of the, the book of Jeremiah, and I've been enjoying just spending time in my preparation time going through uh, the book of Jeremiah, preparing for Sundays and meditating on the content of the book, because admittedly, it's the kind of book, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it's the kind of book that could be very easy for me to skip through, very easy for you to skip through. It's not really the kind of book that Christians in general tend to spend a lot of time in. And it's not that we purposely try and ignore a book like Jeremiah. It's just that when you're going through Jeremiah, you almost want to make sure that emotionally you're kind of feeling good already before you go through it because he says a lot of heavy things and he says a lot of difficult things. And it's one of those books that is intentionally meant to kind of poke and prod at areas of our lives that we don't necessarily want poked and prodded at. And when you look at what Jeremiah's experience was like during the course of the years of his ministry, he started young. We don't know exactly how old he was, but his complaint to the Lord, when the Lord said, listen, Jeremiah, I want you to speak to these people. Jeremiah was like, how am I supposed to speak to these people? I'm too young and I'm not really a good speaker. And the Lord said, listen, you know, effectively, don't give me excuses. Just do what I tell you to do. And so Jeremiah spent about 42 years speaking to the people of Judah, communicating the word of God as, as the Lord communicated it to him. And during that 42 years, as best as I can see it, when I read through the book of Jeremiah, I see evidence of two people that responded favorably to what Jeremiah was preaching. So could you imagine spending 42 years trying to encourage people to walk with the Lord, to repent of their sin, and only having two people respond? Don't you think that would be kind of discouraging? Don't you imagine that over that period of time that you'd be like, Lord, really, is there anything else that maybe you would have as an option that I could do? Everybody hated what Jeremiah had to say because it seemed like he was always saying the confrontational thing at the time that people didn't want to be confronted. So people would be celebrating like we saw last week and Jeremiah would remind them, um, we see that you're celebrating, but guess what? The Lord sees what's really going on in your heart. And it's really messed up in there. And so Jeremiah was not loved in his generation. He was not embraced by the people that he was speaking to. He was not patted on the back. And in fact, we know that at the end of his life, he died in Egypt and he was, he was stoned 
and then buried in an, basically an unmarked grave. Because people were like, enough. We don't want to hear anymore. It's a really delightful thing, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine just spending your entire life and that being the case? But again, I look at it from the eternal perspective. Jeremiah received a rich welcome into the Lord's kingdom. You know, as he saw the Lord face to face once his brief season on this earth was done, that's the type of life that when you're living that, a life submitted to the Lord, you get to see the Lord do amazing things through a life like that. It just sometimes takes time. And here you and I are, 2,600 years later, reading the very things that the Lord inspired Jeremiah to write down, and we're benefiting from these things. And we're being challenged in healthy ways. And I'm convinced that when you go through a book like Jeremiah, if you're really open to the kind of content that you find in a book like this, and really open to, to the Lord kind of you know, poking around in different areas of, of your life, your faith will grow. You'll be challenged in healthy ways, and your desire to, to be uh, focused on the things that matter to the Lord, it becomes heightened. It accelerates as we adopt the mindset and the practices that are, we're encouraged uh, to, to put into practice when we look at a book like this, as we walk by faith in Jesus Christ. So today we're in Jeremiah chapter 10. We haven't been hitting every chapter of the book, but what we're doing is we're looking at main sections and we're looking at main highlights. Last week we, we looked at part of chapter 7. Today we're, we're jumping ahead to chapter 10. And the concept that we'll be looking at as we look at this chapter is this. The fact that we'll regret if we settle for a cheap substitute. That's what Jeremiah was challenging the people to recognize. That if you settle for a cheap substitute, now specifically he's referencing this in the spiritual realm. But he's saying if you settle for a cheap substitute, there is regret that will come from that. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Jeremiah chapter 10. We're just looking at the first 10 verses of that chapter today. And this is what it says starting with verse 1 of Jeremiah 10. It says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it's been over the past few weeks to look at one of the most frequently skipped books of the Bible, 
the book of Jeremiah. And we thank you, Lord, that you use the challenging messages that you spoke through Jeremiah to challenge people today. And you've been doing this for centuries. Lord, we recognize that in the midst of the generation that he lived in, his message wasn't warmly received. People chose to go their own way, to their own peril. And as a result, they they dealt with just a lot of unnecessary adversity because they spent their lives thumbing their nose at you. And Lord, we don't want to be people that do that same thing. We know that we have the same sinful inclinations in our heart. We know, Lord, that that's the same struggle that we wrestle with day by day. But we look at a portion of Scripture like this and we're reminded of the fact that you want more for your children. You want us to love you. You want us to walk with you. You want us to experience the joy of obedience to you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would trust you enough to obey what you declare. We pray, Lord, that we would put you first in our minds and put you first in our hearts and that we would rejoice in who you are. And so we thank you, Lord, for this portion of Scripture. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to the teaching from it this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that seems to entertain my children when it comes up in conversation is how many years I can get out of a pair of shoes. Um, In fact, I have a pair of sneakers. I, I wore them yesterday that I don't remember how many years ago it was when I bought them. I think it's at least four. And uh, one of my kids was asking me not too terribly long ago um, when I got those sneakers because they still look relatively new. And they were kind of amazed that they're still holding up as nicely as they are. But obviously that wasn't the case when I was a kid, right? When I would buy a pair of sneakers or my parents would buy me a pair of sneakers when I was a kid, I would go through them much quicker. Um, I was always outside doing something. Um, now as, you know, as an adult, I mean, how, how often do you just randomly, it's like, you know, we got 15 minutes, let's play football. Like, that's not a conversation that my friends and I have. It's like, we got, we got like five minutes before our parents pick us up. Let's just run in circles and not have any real purpose to it. Let's just run around, right? As a child, that's very much, uh, an aspect of your life. And so of course you go through sneakers much quicker. I, I know that, um, you know, if I got a few months out of a pair of shoes during that era, I was pretty good. And being one of three siblings, um, the rate at which I would burn through a pair of shoes during that particular season of my life was not a minor expense for my parents, right? As they're trying to keep shoes on not only themselves, but me and, and my siblings, that was something that, you know, they were certainly mindful of. And so that being the case, on occasion, we didn't do this too much after a while, but on occasion, we would get, you know, some of like the, the knockoff brands thinking like, all right, like maybe, maybe that'll be fine for a little while. And I remember this one particular brand that when I was real young, we would get that had Velcro that came over and Velcro was kind of a new thing. And so to have Velcro sneakers was a real treat. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. That'll, that'll be cool to have Velcro sneakers. And uh, so we got them. And uh, I wore them for a little bit, and the, the air holes that are like right on the front of the sneaker, it would just like fold and crack. And so you just like your shoe, like you'd wear it for a week, and it would crack. And I remember soon after that, I was like, all right, this pair of shoes you got to be really careful with. And my mother bought me another pair like that. And I was like, okay, this time I don't want them to crack. So I would walk like this, because I didn't want to bend the front. So I was like, no, this kind, it actually cracks and rips open if you're not careful. But of course, how can you do that for any length of time? And of course, they broke and, and, and were ruined pretty quickly as well. 
And so we learned, all right, sometimes a bargain is nice, but there are certainly moments where settling for a cheap substitute is not really the best option. And I bring that up because that's the essence of what we're looking at today from this portion of Scripture. You have the Lord speaking through Jeremiah and saying, teach the people not to settle for these cheap substitutes. They were doing this on the spiritual level. They were, they were looking at idols, and it describes them here. We'll go into detail in just a moment. These things made by craftsmen, and they're treating them like they created them, meaning like that these idols created the people. And the Lord says through Jeremiah, effectively, these people are settling for the worship of something that is stupid and foolish. They're adopting a cheap substitute as if it's the real thing. And so we're encouraged to be people who don't settle for a cheap substitute, that we end up trading God for that cheap substitute. And Jeremiah was encouraging the people to be mindful of that as well. And so there's some principles that go along with that that this portion of Scripture brings up. And one of the principles is this. Don't be allured by the spirit of the times. And what do I mean by that? Let's reread the first two verses and let me explain. It says this. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. Let's pause there for just a moment. So in every generation, there's something that is referred to. I don't know if you ever heard the word zeitgeist. You ever hear that word get used? It's the idea of the spirit of the times, right? There's there's, there are ideas, there are beliefs that seem to take hold in a large percentage of people in every particular era. And if we looked at our culture right now, if we looked at our culture here in the present, there are certainly some ideas that would fall into this whole idea of the spirit of the times that we could list. And many of these ideas are adorned with very pleasant-sounding labels. Uh, but when we look beyond the surface, we begin to see what's really going on. Now, just a, a few days ago, I, re I received something. Actually, a little over a week ago, I first received it, and I responded to it several days ago. Uh, but I received something from my son's school that very much fit with this kind of, this kind of issue. Um, I was told that a particular class was preparing to teach the children to practice mindfulness. And admittedly, being mindful... Sounds all well and good, but when you examine this concept through the light of Scripture, you quickly realize that the practice isn't, isn't rooted in the teaching of God's Word. It's actually rooted in the beliefs of Buddhism. And uh, so I inquired about this to the teacher, awkwardly, right? Because I know that teachers love when parents send them letters questioning you know, things that, uh, you know, that are being taught in class. And I discovered in the process that today... So today, right now as we're gathered here, she was also organizing a trip to a Buddhist temple so that students that wanted to could participate in the Buddhist worship service. And I'm like, wait a second, this is far beyond like world cultures where you sit down and learn about world religions. You're actually encouraging these children to practice Buddhism. And I said, so obviously that's not something that I'm comfortable with as a parent, and so I expressed my opinion. I said, listen, I'm not going to make a huge fuss about this, but I do want you to know how this strikes me as a parent. I'm not comfortable with this sort of thing being taught to my children or really any children, particularly in a public school context. So I politely expressed my displeasure with it. But again, it's one of those things where you have 
a nice sounding name, and then you scratch a little bit beyond the surface and you discover what's really going on. So as the saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And during Jeremiah's time, you have the people of Judah and you have the people of Israel. They were being highly influenced by the belief systems and the practices of the neighboring nations. And instead of developing a fidelity to the teaching of God's Word, what had happened was they started to become enamored with the ways and the beliefs of the other nations. We're even told in these verses that they had started to become dismayed at the signs of the heavens. That was an issue that they were dealing with. They were dismayed at the signs of the heavens, just like their their foreign neighbors happened to be. Now, their foreign neighbors, one of their foreign, foreign nations that was right there next to them were the Babylonians. And in fact, it was the Babylonians that developed the, the like astrology and things that we would say fit with that, um, things like, uh, like zodiac symbols and like the horoscopes and, and things like that. That comes out of the Babylonians. And you could see that those pagan practices and those pagan beliefs were having an impact on the people of Judah. And interestingly, they continue to have an impact on people even today. These are things that we're familiar with. These are things that we talk about. These are things that we know people that make decisions for their life based on some of that kind of false teaching. But followers of Christ should be much more discerning than that. At the moment that we trusted in Jesus Christ, that very moment, the Holy Spirit took residence within you. He marked you He sealed you, and He continues to counsel you. That's what He does for us. He marked us. He sealed us. He counsels us. He indwells us, right? He makes the Bible clear to us when we read it. So it's not just a whole bunch of information on a page, but when we read it, it actually starts to click in our mind, and we begin to understand and see things that we wouldn't have naturally known unless He had revealed these things to us. And He helps us to see things like they really are so that we don't become captive to the spirit of the times or the deceptive philosophies that might gain popularity during our generation. Now, this isn't the only portion of Scripture that speaks of these sorts of things. Colossians chapter 2 has this reference in verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So you have the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Colossae, and what's he telling them? He's saying, listen, in your context, there are going to be all sorts of ideas thrown about, and all sorts of philosophies encouraged, and there's going to be all sorts of people that really embrace these things, and he says, listen, these are things that are, that are empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. What he's trying to say is there is an active war going on for the affections of our heart and our mind. Saying that this seems like sometimes it's just a philosophical battle or a battle of ideas, but there are actively spiritual agents seeking to infiltrate my mind and your mind with false belief. Scripture refers to these things as demonic, seeking to lead people in a direction that's far from Christ. And in every generation, there's usually a few of their ideas that take hold and enough people buy into them that they just kind of become accepted practice until the next generation comes along and they have new ideas. And then the next generation comes along and they have new ideas. 
And it's just this cycle that continues that for us as followers of Christ, we're encouraged in Scripture, don't buy into it. Don't be deceived by the spirit of the times. Don't allow those sorts of things to cloud your judgment. Continually come back to the Word of God and what it states as a matter of practice, something that Scripture encourages us to be people that do, uh, or, or encourages us as people that follow Christ to do, I should say, is to exercise caution as we begin to see some of these new beliefs take foothold in our culture, to hold all things up to the light of Scripture. So at present, when you look at our generation right now, when you look at those alive during our era, what's the spirit of the times right now? What are the things that people are buying into right now that are in direct opposition to what the Word of God actually teaches? Well, at present, our generation seems enamored with things like humanism, seems enamored with atheism. We have a whole movement that's taken place in the past few years to redefine things like marriage or to redefine gender to adopt practices of New Age spiritism, to adopt practices that flow with the teaching of Eastern religions. That's some of the aspects of the spirit of the times that right now is being thrown your way and my way, and we could choose to buy into it, or we can hold it up to the light of Scripture and see what the Lord actually desires us to believe and follow. But please notice these things when they're taking place so that you don't allow them to infiltrate your mind And so you don't allow them to infiltrate your household. Guard your mind, guard your home to this kind of false teaching. It's prevalent in every generation. Our generation is not exempt. Chuck Colson made a statement a group of years ago where he said this. He said, when the God of the Bible is rejected, people choose a new God. We were designed to worship, right? I mean, that's part of our design. Intrinsically, that's how you and I have been designed by God. We're designed as worshipers. So if the God of the Bible, if the true and living God is rejected, it's not like people ultimately are going to go to know God. And even atheism, when you really look at it, it's a belief system. It's a worship system. People replace the true and living God with something else, something false. If we reject the God of the Bible, we'll choose a new God. James Emery White said this. He said, Apart from a Christian mind, we will either be taken captive by the myriad of worldviews contending for our attention, or we'll fail to make the Christian voice heard and considered above the din. So you look at comments like this, you look at what this Scripture says, what we're being taught in this portion of Scripture is don't be allured by the spirit of the times. Don't buy into it. Always hold up what you believe to what the Scriptures actually reveal. Scripture goes on to give us another word of caution, and that says, don't be afraid of something that has no power over you. Don't be afraid of something that has absolutely no power over you. Look at what it says in verses 3 to 5. It says this in Jeremiah 10. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Let's pause there for just a second. I'm going to show you a picture. I feel pretty confident that you'll recognize 
the image on the left. All right, so on the left, who, who, who do we have here? It's Rocky, right? It's Rocky Balboa, the greatest boxer in all fictional history, right? So obviously we know that the, the Rocky statue for quite a while now, ever since I think it was Rocky III, when it was donated to the city, right? So I think like right around 1980-ish, somewhere in, in that, in that uh, period of time. It's, it's right outside the art house, right? It used to be at the top of the art house steps, uh, art museum. Um, now it's down, uh, you know, just off to the side a little bit. And so that's a statue that, you know, when most people are coming and touring Philly, what do they do? You get a picture taken with the Rocky statue, then you run up the steps, and when you get to the top of the side, should we do that? Like maybe the worship team should do that on Sunday mornings. When you come up these steps, worship team leaders, you have my permission to do that. Maybe one of these Sundays I'll run up and we'll do that. We'll kind of recreate that here. Um, maybe not. Um, on the other side here, this is a statue that's in Brockton, Massachusetts. Does anyone know what the, who that is? Yes, okay. Who, I, I'm surprised that people knew that. All right. Uh, that's Rocky Marciano, undefeated real boxer. Okay. Um, so the mayor of... Brockton, Massachusetts has made a little wager with the mayor of Philadelphia. Rocky statue versus Rocky statue, because the Eagles and the Patriots are about to face each other in a mere seven days. And the wager is this. The losing city has to dress their Rocky statue in the team garb of the winning city. Did you know this? So that means if the Eagles lose the Super Bowl... Rocky gets dressed up in Patriots gear. And if the Eagles win the Super Bowl, Rocky Marciano gets dressed up in Eagles gear. And this seemed like a great idea to these mayors. And they have been receiving nothing but flack about it ever since. People were like, yeah, you can make your stupid bet between you. You are not dressing up. I, I, I feel relatively confident that there are going to be uh, plenty of people in either city saying, um, yeah, so we're just not going to let you do that, and uh, you can move along. You are not dressing up the statue in the, the colors and the attire of the opposing team. And uh, I was, in fact, I was listening to a, dis a whole debate about this on sports radio the other day. One of my guilty pleasures is I love to listen to sports radio, and so I'm listening to this, and the guys brought it up, and they... It was getting heated, like it was a heated discussion. One guy was like, I don't know, it might not be that big of a deal. And the other guy's like, what do you mean? It's not, of course it's a big deal. And then they're debating, well, Rocky's kind of, he's a fictional boxer. It's like, no, this is a symbol of our city. And so there's all this, all this debate and all this argument. I don't know if you saw this thing. This is separate, something separate, but related in a way. Um, I saw it uh, a few years ago online in, uh, I guess it was probably a YouTube video or something along those lines. And it showed a, a, a large gathering in what looked to be some sort of a, you know, very impressive looking worship center or, or a, like cathedral or something like that. And they were all carrying in, there were, there were, four, there were four guys uh, that were uh, holding this thing that had kind of like a, it was just like a flat surface. They were holding it almost like you would hold a king's like if you're bringing a king into a room and you had his throne seated on some sort of a platform that's carried by people. They were doing this, one guy on each corner of this thing, for a very ornate and expensive looking statue. And all the people were present and they're watching this and the men carry the statue in very carefully. 
and they get up to the front of this building and then they need to turn around and the guy that was front left, so in the driver's position, did it wrong. And you watch the statue, starts to wobble like this and then it falls off and it's smashed to pieces. And you watch it, the video didn't last much longer than that because as that thing smashed to bits all around, you watch the men try and recover that have just tipped this thing on the ground and you hear people wailing and crying as this thing is now in pieces all around them. And I bring these up and I bring that up because how does something like a statue gain such a high level of importance to us? Like how could a statue smashing make people wail and cry? And like a whole, like a whole building just just panic at this thing smashing. How does an object made by a craftsman become an object of worship or an object of dread? How does that happen in our mind? Like, how does that process actually take place? In some respects, I actually think it comes down to our resistance toward, the, toward an expression of genuine faith. And what I mean by that is this. We have a tendency to prefer to walk by sight. And a statue is something that we can see. In fact, when you think back to ancient Israel, what happened after the Lord leads them out of Egypt toward the promised land, one of the first things they do are erect statues that they could worship because they're not seeing God face to face, so they feel like they need to see something. They need to see something so that they could worship it. And a statue is something that we can see. And if we start to come to the belief that a statue has some level of power over us, it's not hard to imagine us go, going from admiring, appreciating, things of that nature, to begin actually worshiping that statue. And throughout human history, this has been a struggle that we have wrestled with. Now, the process of crafting and the process of worshiping idols is described in the verses that we just read from Jeremiah. And it was a process that was very common among the people of Judah. And so this passage actually describes it. It walks you through the process. It tells us about trees being cut down and then worked on by craftsmen and then decorated with silver and decorated with gold and then placed in a fixed position so that they won't fall over. And then when it's all prepared and pretty and ready, then it's worshipped. But the Lord made it clear through the prophet Jeremiah as he spoke through him that idols such as these have no real power. A belief in their power is nothing but folly or superstition. They have no real power. We're told that they're like a scarecrow. You know, that's how they're described here. They can't speak, they can't walk, they can't do evil, they can't do good. It's just a thing. It's just a scarecrow. So worshiping the work of another man's hands is foolishness. That's what Jeremiah was implored by the Lord to communicate to the people of Judah. So if worshiping the work of another man's hand is foolishness, who then deserves our worship? Where should our worship be directed? Well, we know as followers of Jesus Christ that our worship should only be directed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nobody else, nothing else. And it's interesting because like a tree, so here it's talking about this process of an idol being crafted, and it talks about trees being cut down and fashioned and, and different things like that. And it's interesting because like a tree, Jesus was cut down when he was crucified and nailed to the beam of a cross. But unlike a tree, 
He didn't remain dead. He was cut down, but didn't remain dead. He rose from death, Scripture tells us. He lives and He offers the blessing of new life to anyone who will trust in Him. Now imagine being one of the first people to hear that one you knew was actively cut down was now living. And among the disciples of Christ, even though they had heard Jesus speak about these things, they had heard Him speak about His crucifixion and resurrection multiple times before it happened, we know that the disciples even struggled to believe it. And we know that during that time, all of them but one had seen Jesus at one point, and there was one left that hadn't yet seen Him after His resurrection, and that was Thomas. And Thomas struggled to believe that Jesus actually rose from death. Because that's not something he had ever seen. He had never seen someone who had been cut down rise from death in that kind of respect. And so here you have in John chapter 20, the Scripture tells us this. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of, uh, of the nails and place my hand into his side. By the way, I don't think Thomas actually wanted to do things like that. You know, I don't think he was like, I want to put my finger and my hand into open wounds. Unless I get to, what he's saying is he's trying to speak in such a way that it's like, um, let me say this the grossest, most emphatic way possible to show you I'm not buying it, right? He says, unless I act, this hand, unless this hand actually goes into those wounds, I will never believe. The Scripture goes on to tell us this, that eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He says things like this because the doors are locked, and all of a sudden he just walks into the room, and the first thing that people... It, basically, Jesus saying, Guys, don't freak out. Peace be with you. Everybody relax. It's just me. Then he said to Thomas... Showing Thomas, by the way, I hear everything you say, I see everything you're doing. He's like, hey, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand, or put out your hand, place it in my side. Go for it. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, I don't get the impression that Thomas actually took him up on the offer, right? I get the impression that at that point he's like, you know what? We're good. Because Scripture actually tells us that those wounds remain on the body of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Here's a bit of trivia. There's one man-made thing in heaven. One man-made thing in heaven. The wounds that are on the body of Christ. They remain as an eternal testimony to what He paid for you and me to actually have the privilege to live with Him forever. It says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. So it's not just, you know, my teacher, right? He says, My Lord and my God. He recognizes that he's face-to-face -face with God in this moment. Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here in this context, you have the, the disciples seeing one who was actively cut down and then rises from death to life. And you have Thomas in this context here who after he sees the risen Christ, he believes and he worships Christ as Lord. He worships Christ as God. And I bring this up in contrast to the struggle that was going on during Jeremiah's time, because here you have these people who are worshiping objects that are crafted by craftsmen, that have no power over them. And, and the Lord, through Jeremiah, was saying, 
Don't be afraid of something that has no power over you. But here in Christ, what do we see? We see that in Jesus, true power over life and death is present. Christ has power over life. Christ has power over death. We revere and we worship Him as our Lord and our God because He actually does have power over us. And so there's a contrast between these these mute and dead idols and our living Savior, Jesus Christ. He has power over us. He deserves our worship. This is something that Jeremiah was trying to challenge the people to understand, that these mute idols were nothing but like a scarecrow. There's one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings up that is worth noticing today, and that's this, that we're encouraged to give praise to God because His glory is beyond all comparison. Look at what it says in verse 6 down to verse 10. It says, so you have Jeremiah stating these things. He says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Let's pause there. When I was growing up, I had the opportunity to do something a few times that I I enjoyed every time I had the opportunity to do it. Do you ever have the the chance to tour through a model home? You ever have a chance to do that? You know, like sometimes, do you ever pass by a place that has a whole bunch of model homes for sale that you could tour through and and walk through them. Uh, Every opportunity I had to to do something like that when I was growing up, I was always fascinated by it because I'd walk through those buildings and I would imagine what it would be like to live in a place like that because we moved a lot when I was growing up. We moved, I counted once, 12 times before I graduated high school we moved. And the truth is the places that we lived in weren't, most of the time, weren't all that nice. And so, you know, I'd go, I remember... Like it would really, more so probably than it stands out to me now, during that period of time, I, you know, if I was ever in like a model home, I'd look around at it and I'd look at the architecture and I'd look at how everything was fresh and new and I, you know, all, all, just all the features, how the floor plan was laid out. And I would just imagine what would it be like living in a home so nice? What would it be like to live in something like this? Because it was a big contrast to what I was used to. The comparison, when viewed side by side, was very, very different. And when you look at this section here as we finish up today, you have Jeremiah intentionally making a comparison. He's taking one thing and comparing it with another, right? He's making a comparison of the Lord with the lesser things that the people were choosing to worship. And as Jeremiah is dwelling here on this dichotomy, he praises the Lord for His greatness, He's saying, Lord, you're great, right? You are great. Your name is great in might. That's how he phrases it in this portion of Scripture. And he acknowledged that there was nobody like the Lord and nothing like the Lord. The kings that were oftentimes treated like deities during that era, he said, look, 
you know, they don't compare to the Lord. The most prominent people on the earth didn't compare to the glory of the Lord. The idols that were fashioned out of wood with a lot of care and a lot of precision and then overlaid with silver or overlaid with gold, he says that doesn't compare to the Lord. The most regal-looking uh, clothing dyed with the most expensive and precious dyes doesn't compare with the Lord. He's saying here, the Lord is the only true and living God. Emphasis on living. You know, this idea that he's living as opposed to these dead idols that have no life within them. And when our faith over time, so if you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time, something you'll probably notice over time is that your faith begins to strengthen. It it begins to develop. It begins to mature. And as our faith in the Lord matures over time, this is the kind of perspective that he starts to develop within us as well. We begin to appreciate his greatness. We begin to recognize that that all the things that our hearts ever desired, whether it be earthly riches or personal prestige or relationships or anything that this world might offer us, that it pales in comparison to the greatness of our God. So that means that our Lord, who is so great, is worthy to be praised in the midst of every season of our life, whether we're going through a season of happiness or not. He's worthy to be praised in the midst of our seasons of sorrow and pain. He's worthy to be praised when our hearts and our minds are tempted to be focused on other things. He deserves the praise that comes forth from our lips so that we're not overly focused on our momentary needs or our momentary concerns and begin treating these things like those things are are somehow eternal in nature. He helps us to see beyond the moment that we're in so that we don't stay stuck in it, so that we begin to embrace the kind of joy that we possess as men and women who know Jesus Christ. So we finish up today. I want to show you two psalms. If you're ever desiring to praise the Lord and worship Him for His greatness toward you, and you're kind of struggling with things to say, open up the book of Psalms. There's a lot of things there that I think give us good counsel on what it looks like to genuinely praise the Lord from the depth of our hearts. The book of Psalms, verse, uh, chapter 34, 34, verses 1 through 4, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So here you have David, the psalmist, as he's writing these things out, giving praise to the Lord for how great he is and recognizing that the Lord actually does make a difference in his day-to-day life. The Lord delivers him from all his fears. And he realizes as he walks with the Lord that the Lord deserves to be praised. Later in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 103, it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, right? So do you ever have those moments where you're praising the Lord, but you're also preaching to your own heart at the same time? And you're saying, why do I forget these benefits? Why do I forget the benefits of what it means to actually walk with the Lord? Why does he seem so distant to me right now? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget all the benefits that have come to your life through knowing him, right? Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. These are great things to be giving the Lord praise for. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I don't know how that got there. I'm not certain how that got there. 
So your youth is renewed like the eagles. That was completely not coincidental that I selected that scripture. Anyway, in your life and in your faith, do not settle for cheap substitutes for God. Don't settle for it. You know, in Christ, we have been granted a living hope. We've been granted access to the throne of the Father. We've been granted joy that surpasses our momentary circumstances and our momentary trials. The earth may offer us all kinds of alternatives to experiencing a vibrant relationship with the Lord. But these substitutions produce nothing but regret. Our hearts have been intentionally fashioned by the Lord to never be satisfied until we find the real thing. A person's heart will wander and wander and wander, aimlessly trying to adopt the worship of lesser things until they ultimately find the true and living hope through faith in Jesus Christ. Your heart and my heart can never be satisfied with anything lesser. And this portion of Scripture, as the Lord speaks it through Jeremiah and then communicates it to us, reminds us of that very thing. Don't settle for a cheap substitute when you have Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to walk with you. Thank you for the privilege that it is to know you and to recognize that all the things of this earth, the things that we're so often tempted to be enamored with, the philosophies, the mindset, the false beliefs, the practices, the patterns, all sorts of things that are often proposed to us as being useful and being good and being things that we should welcome into our mind and welcome into our life and things that sometimes are presented with, you know, we're, we're told things like, yeah, all right, so the generation before you didn't believe this, but you're so much more enlightened and you know things that they didn't know. And now you can adopt this new teaching. Lord, we see this stuff all around us all the time. And Lord, we recognize that the generations that come after us will have new things that are presented before them that they'll be encouraged to adopt. Then we look at a portion of Scripture like this, and it reminds us that the idols of this world, the false beliefs of this world, these are not things that you have called your people to adopt into their minds and into their lives. These are things that you've called us to have no fear of, to step away from, to not give credence to. Because it's your desire that we walk with you by faith in every context of life that you place us in. Lord, I don't know what we're wrestling with right now. You know what's going on in the minds and the hearts of every one of us gathered here today. You know, Lord, that if, if we've allowed false beliefs to creep in somewhere that need to be rooted out. Lord, that's something that we all struggle with. But Lord, as our faith in you matures, we pray that by your grace, that you would help us more and more and more to be eager to give you the praise that you deserve. We pray, Lord, that, that praise for you would just flow quickly and expediently just right off our tongues because this is something that our minds and our hearts are so permeated with. Lord, we pray that when we look at, at the book of Psalms, like we just took a moment to do so, that we would think about all the things that you've done in our lives and the difference that you've made for our, in regard to our future. Lord, the scripture reminds us that you have redeemed our lives from the pit. We were destined for a, a, an earthly life and an eternity apart from you until you intervened. 
You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to atone for our sin, to rescue and redeem us, to defeat death, to offer us life. We're grateful, Lord, that you've chosen to do that. And we're grateful that we have the privilege to be beneficiaries of that gift of grace. So, Lord, help us to ultimately have faith in you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would walk with you daily. We pray that you would be first in our minds and first in our hearts and that all things that we're tempted to believe, that we would listen to the counsel of the Holy Spirit, that we would hold up all things that we believe to the light of your word. We're grateful, Lord, that you have given us this kind of help because we obviously need it. Every generation that came before us needed it. Every generation that comes after us will need it as well. Work in our minds, work in our hearts, we pray. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name.